Okay. Ross, can you hear me fine? Excellent. Elise, how are you? Yeah, good. Fabulous. Right. Doing great. Okay, let's start now. No, that wasn't the start. This is now the start. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our Gem Pursuit podcast. Uh, we're do- this is our season two. We are talking about different gemstones. It's a five-part series, and today we are going to talk about rubies. I'm with my co-host, Elise Ketcher. Elise, what are we going to talk about today? The mysterious, magical red gemstone that is on everybody's lips. Today we're talking about ruby, the fascinating color of red, why it has had such a historical importance to us, the different historical gems, including a fabulous tiara, and we're also going to revisit our gem trivia. See who wins today, because I think... I'm on top so far. Yeah, so we have a lot of interesting pieces there to discuss, as Elise mentioned. Um, so let's get started. A very popular one today, Elise, is of course rubies, one of the most popular gemstones throughout history, worn by many different antique civilizations and I think coveted by so many different people. And one of my favorites, and I know I mentioned that as about emeralds as well, but rubies the really, really good ones, I think, incredible, extremely rare, probably as much as some of the rarest diamonds. But as always, first and foremost, uh, we have to identify these rubies. What do you look for in identification of rubies? We have actually gone through a lot of the identification methods that we use when we're looking at colored gemstones in particular. We've touched on a lot to do with the inner inclusions that we would look for. Also, um, other kind of surface features that we might look for. And of course, the color uh, it, it is very, very similar with, with ruby. Those are the, the main things that we would look for. Um, but there is one special thing that rubies do that not a lot of other red gemstones do, and it's fluoresce. So one of the key things that I do when I'm looking at a ruby straight away in front of me is I will use my little UV torch just to see how much it will glow underneath the uh, the UV rays. That is a great one, and especially in determining origin. But there's one key thing that I think with rubies is quite uh, a specialized area. And I think that is ruby versus pink sapphire because they are essentially they are the same um material they're corundum which is of course uh, what sapphire is corundum ruby is red sapphire but pink sapphire uh i think a very very valuable gemstone but obviously not as much as the top rubies and i was looking a bit up about this there the other day and it, it's still a bit of a gray area isn't it uh, yes, yes. So again, this will um, vary quite dramatically um, within within the industry. So of course, most people are going to want their pink sapphire to actually make it into the category of ruby. But the way that we usually identify that is we look at the coloration and is the coloration a 
primary or secondary um, color to what you're looking at. Now, just to explain that a little bit, it's sometimes you'll look at a gemstone and you'll see that it has two colors. So it might be a greenish blue or it might be a bluish green. Now, it's always the dominant color that kind of makes it exactly what it is. So if, for instance, if I was looking at a, a, a sapphire and it was a bluish green, it would be a green sapphire. Or if I was looking at a sapphire that was bluish green, it would be a blue, uh, oh, sorry, yeah, vice versa. Vice versa. Yeah, I get you. Yeah. So yeah. That's kind of the way that it works with the rubies. If you look at a ruby and you say, okay, it's a reddish pink, then it's more likely going to fit into the category of a pink sapphire. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 in theory, that is the way it should work, but it, it's... It doesn't always. It doesn't always. And I think the, it's funny the tra- <laughs> what they always say in the, the, well, what I would call the old school dealers who are some of the most knowledgeable people that I know with, but they say if you're if you're buying their pink sapphires and if you're selling their rubies, but uh, <laughs> that's it, exactly how it works. That's exactly what they say. And I mean, see, the thing is, there's no like there's no regulation or legislation over it. There are you can't get certificates which will denote ruby or pink sapphire, and the GIA have a certain point and tone and saturation and hue uh, and hue tone and saturation or what makes up color. And the GIA does have this particular point where it goes from ruby to pink sapphire. But I think it's definitely, I mean, if you're, if you're buying, you just got to love the stone, I think. Mm-hmm. Maybe even irrespective of, of color. But yeah, dominant color, as you said, definitely uh, should be red. But I do find a lot of those Burmese. And Burmese is, um, you know, we'll get to, to origin, I think. The, uh, but Burmese are, rubies are some of the most coveted. I find a lot of those can have a pinky tone to them, actually. Yeah, so the the real reason behind, because I was going to touch on this a little bit later, but I think it, it fits into here and it'll also go into value. But uh, when when we look at the, the Burmese mine rubies, specifically Mogok, um, this particular area, um, which is now known as Myanmar, the country Myanmar was called Burma when it was under British rule. This particular area um, known as Ruby Valley, this, these are where the rubies actually formed with marble in metamorphic rock. So in a very mountainous kind of area where um, the earth is creating mountains, this area has sapphires as well but the rubies that form they actually form in marble yeah i've seen if you see in some photos that it's really awesome because it's this pure white yeah rock yeah yeah so marble as well is a um like matthew said it's a white rock but it's very very high in iron so when the ruby is actually forming on that host rock, the host rock is actually taking all of the iron elements and the ruby is taking the chromium, chromium elements. So it means that once it's formed, we have no iron present. And this is the reason why rubies from that area 
are so bright red. They have high concentration of chromium and they're, they're beautifully red in the sunlight because of their high chromium levels. So it's actually the perfect area for these particular rubies to grow because the iron is being taken out. Now, in contrast to that, when we look at the rubies that are found in, um, in, in Thailand, these particular rubies have a high iron content. So that iron content actually makes them a little more browner, a little bit more oranger. So they're like a little bit more of a dark kind of crimson red, which, you know, there, there is a place on the market for that coloration. But when you actually hold the UV over it, it doesn't have the same amount of chromium element to it. So it means that it doesn't have the same kind of magical quality that you see from the Burmese mines. So, you know, that kind of identification feature where you're looking at rubies, like you said, it's a real big minefield because it depends on where it's coming from the coloration and who you're talking to. Like you said, are you talking to the seller or are you talking to the buyer? And that way, you know, unless you're, you can see the two very good examples in front of you of what is a pink sapphire and what is a, a, a ruby. Sometimes it can be very, very difficult to, to determine the two. We got into something very interesting there, Elise, I thought you were talking about is the origin of rubies and i think that also has a lot to do with value valuation of these beautiful gemstones not i mean as as we mentioned before of course with diamonds we've got the four c's rubies falls into the four c's but talk to me a little bit about um valuation when it comes to ruby I think we, you and I both know, like when we're looking, when we've got a tray of rubies in front of us, um, which we, it actually does happen quite often with us because we're looking for the best of the best um, in antique jewelry. And to be honest, the best rubies are usually always found in antique, in antique jewelry. So when we have a tray in front of us, one of my most favorite sayings that you always say when you look at the gems is you're like, it's not lively enough. And that's really it. The stone has to have a very beautiful uh, coloration to it, bright, lively um, color. Then it has to have a good cut because if the color if the color is there but the cut isn't right, it means that it's not actually going to live to its full potential. So sometimes we see a, a few uh, older antique pieces and they may have been the facets on the stone, which are the little faces on the stone, maybe abraded. So they you know it's not living to its full potential. And then we have it repolished and it looks like a brand new, a brand new gem. Um, and of course, with rubies, it is a little bit more important to look at um, inclusions because with the bright red color, it can be quite unsightly to have a very dark brown or orange patch in your stone. Yes. And yeah. so that would be another another thing that kind of would determine value how clear it is how it reacts with light the beauty of it 
and of course the levels of chromium which can be seen yeah yeah no i think that that's that's really summed it up it's a combination of those four c's i suppose like like diamonds but what's interesting there is exactly as you put them the order of them is not the same as diamonds you know with with rubies we it's always color first um i think then probably cut then clarity and then carrot weight but they're again it's it's really dependent because of how rubies are cut they're cut for maximum liveliness as you said uh, and uh color but there, there's like um there's how would i describe it? there's like when you think of the price with rubies i find the size of them can also be important in this respect in that from zero up to a carrot the price goes up steadily kind of at a similar level then from one to kind of two carrots it'll get steeper the price and then i find once you get over two carrots every kind of increment over that the price can really jump like the difference from like half a carrot to one carrot would be obviously something significant but from you know two and a half to three would be enormous because especially if it's and then if you combine like a super good color like it can be like just a exponential increase i mean because the really really finest rubies and the most valuable ones are not like enormous i mean i think the most one of the most valuable ones ever sold was 25.5 carats which well obviously is a, is a you know it's a significant gemstone I mean, we've plenty of gemstones that are 25.5 carats. I mean, okay, most of them are, um, I mean, there's amethyst, citrines. Aquamarines. Aquamarines. We have, I think we have a several aquamarines that are over 25.5 carats. And sorry, as I think of that now, if that was a ruby, I'm like, oh my God, that'd be enormous. But it, it's not that big, but that is like the most valuable ru- ruby. It was mounted by Cartier. Um, it's called the Sunrise Ruby. Um, and it sold for, oh God, quite a lot of money and um, millions I, i'm looking at my notes here i was carrying them in today in the rain and actually it <laughs> splashed on the <laughs> point where i have the price but it, i think it was, i could have been 30 million or something like that i'll have to double check that now but um the point of it is though even at 25 carats the price just increased so so quickly like if you if you divided that by 25 it wouldn't equal a one carat stone a one carat stone would be much less than that but even still a one carat ruby is is quite rare if it's pigeon blood red and untreated exactly i i mean i think you've hit the nail on the head here they're very different because in in this case size does matter like it really does matter and it's because of the rarity of how uh, how rubies are actually formed they don't usually form in very large crystals and as they do form in in larger crystals the ends of the of the um, ruby won't be so highly concentrated in color. So the ends of the ruby might be pink sapphire and then more towards the center, you see the, the richer depths of the stone. And so finding a ruby that is significantly large and then being able to cut it so that it still has the same amount of color throughout the stone and doesn't look like it's washed out is extremely rare. And that's why we don't see larger stones very, very, very often. And it's also one of the reasons why a lot of rubies, um, as they get into the larger carat weight, actually command higher prices than diamond per carat. 
So, and that, that baffles people sometimes, sometimes they come in and they see we've got, you know, a two carat ruby pigeon blood, um, non-treated, and it is actually commanding much higher prices than what we have a, a two carat beautiful colored diamond, very high quality, high carat weight, high color, you know, high clarity. So, um, it's all about rarity. That's what it is. It's about what can the earth produce that's rare and people want it. Um, and that's, you know, if you get a large ruby and it's got the right color, you're going to be looking to de- delve deep into those pockets to find the to find, to the-, find the resources and i think yes. that's it and i think elise gave some really interesting insights into the ruby there and i think um when you're talking about value those are the things you have to think about of all the gems out there i think ruby i mean they all have very famous histories and stories and and were involved in significant events, but I think Ruby definitely have a, has a significant or a unique kind of history. Um, talk to me a little bit about that. Ruby definitely has been more readily used in every kind of facet of history. Um, when we look at the Bible, it's the gemstone that is most talked about. It's mentioned at least four times, uh, four times in the Bible. Uh, most of it is to do with the worth of it. So we're talking about even then in, in biblical times, we're talking about the value of Ruby, a gemstone was still exquisitely priced. We also know that because of the kind of the fluoresce, the fluoresce that we see in Ruby, that it was considered a very magical stone. Um, of course, if it's readily available to the native people, um, there's going to be a lot of um, law surrounding the gemstone specifically there as we talked about in the with the emerald mines um in Colombia so uh, the burmese they believed um that their warriors would would gain strength from ruby so they used to believe that it would have to actually be implanted in their skin for them to receive that kind of added strength from the stone so the warriors actually would impregnate the stone into their bodies so that they could um so that they could actually receive the strength from it um in medieval times they believed it had an inner flame so they used to think that if you put it into cold water that it would able to would be able to boil it um and you you can imagine like now we would be able to kind of say dispel that rumor and say well look the the ruby's sitting yeah, in the pot and yet though, yeah but and yet though people still covet ivory though when and we all know that certainly isn't have any medicinal you know qualities or anything yes, like that so exactly yeah no i know what you're saying but interesting that you would assume that sorry it, it, thinking taking what happens with you know ivory into account it wouldn't be unthinkable that people would still do that with Ruby, actually. As you said, it's it's really quite interesting to see how how humans kind of take take something that they see visually and then try and connect it to something else mystically within their life. Yes. Um, and Ruby's definitely one of them. Like if you look up anything to do with Ruby, 
any kind of nation that has been exposed to Ruby historically has a different kind of myth surrounding it. Hinduism has um, actually certain stages that um, of different rubies and how they actually affect each stage. Very interesting. I'm not going to get too deep into that. You know, and more so than other gemstones. I know as we talked about Emerald the last week has a special place, you know, particularly in Cleopatra's time uh, and in South America and in different cultures coveted Emerald. I always Ruby seems to have this just a special connection with a lot of people. I wonder is it to do with the color red, maybe? In that it's you know, it's even today in, in China, red is you know considered a lucky color and, and same I think in Malaysia and even in languages, Ruby has a special kind of affiliation to a lot of words like you know, the Latin word for red is rubert. And obviously I think ruby actually comes from that, so that's not a case of you know chicken and egg, but in Sanskrit you know, Ruby was called the king of gemstones, which I think was, and I apologize for any Sanskrit speakers, but it's uh, Ratnaraj, uh, as you said, mentioned the Bible numerous times. But yeah, the, the I think it's just the color red seemed, it has a sense of like passion and intensity to it, which I think is why maybe it has that glow. Like it, it's, it is in a way glow in the dark because even on a dull day, if the, the UV light will make those rubies glow, I, yeah. I, I think it's really important what you said. It, it's color. What do we associate red with? And it we do associate it with um, with love, with passion, with anger, with with fury, with so many different very passionate emotions um, that us humans go through. But it's also, you know, the color of our blood. So that would have also had a real huge connection to to those who were viewing this stone for the first time, the richness of the red. And I think it's one of the reasons why even today it's the number one gemstone that kind of really pokes you in the eye when you look in a window. It's, you know, red is always going to command attention uh, and it's always going to be something that we automatically are drawn to and in history there's been some really special special rubies that even stand out above the rest there were some really really interesting historical rubies and collections of rubies actually i think i'll i'll um you begin i'll begin begin. i've um after your amazing emerald story last week, I I felt it's good to get in early this one. But mine is actually um, so we're going to talk about a famous ruby in history, and there was a few. I mean, there was I mean the Black Prince's ruby was interesting, but I think it's uh, you know a lot of people would have heard about that. But the one I'm going to talk about is actually was a collection of rubies that was part of the Irish crown jewels, um, which. Yeah, we had our crown jewels here. I don't here. even know this one. I'm ready. Yeah, well, it's... Um, th- so the Ireland did have crown jewels. In fact, um, we've had two instances of crown jewels. Number one, we, we had our own ones, which were held in Dublin Castle, uh, which were subsequently stolen. In fact, it wasn't the first time they were stolen. They were actually stolen twice. The second time was permanent. The first time they were stolen as a prank and actually posted back to uh, Dublin Castle as a... You know, as a prank, but that just that makes me laugh so much because that is so 
Irish that you guys, you, you know, I'm going to do this for a prank yeah. and send the jewels back. I yeah. just, it's well, so great. The sense of humor, obviously, last yeah, generation. Because that was humor. 1907. It, it's, um, you still have a sense of humor back then. And it's, it is quite hilarious when you think of it. Yeah, it wasn't like, it didn't take like, you know, a, I don't know, like a candlestick or a plate or something. <laughs> take that, uh, the jewels take and the post jewels. them back. And another one was the uh, Russian crown, well, not all of the Russian crown jewels, but part of the Russian crown jewels were actually in Ireland at one stage as well. The fledgling Russian Republic were looking for a loan and actually gave some of their crown jewels as commission for, I think it was £25,000. And the jewels went missing actually for quite a long time. Uh, and I think in the 50s they were found again and returned to Russia and the £25,000 was returned. But that's not the ruby we're talking about. The ruby I'm talking about was part of the Irish crown jewels. There was a collection of rubies set into one of the pieces in the Irish crown jewels. They're made by Runler and Bridge and they were sent to... Uh, it was actually in the uh, Saltar of St. Patrick was set with rubies. It went... The, these crown jewels went missing and the interesting thing is that the safe that they were in was opened wasn't actually forced open so they they reckon it was an inside job basically after there was a police investigation there was a lot of claims that people knew where it was in fact my great-grandfather even received a letter from Shackleton who claimed to have and he actually this letter I'd love to find it better uh, it, it's never been found actually um it's only really our family recollections, but it's uh, it seems to be quite clear that the, the letter gave very clear details of how to recover these rubies and these gemstones. And, uh, you know, there was there was a price paid and stuff. But, um, you know, I think my great grandfather believed that it was a bit of a, a scam and never actually handed over any money. And subsequently, these these rubies, he received another letter 20 years after that, actually, uh, claiming to still know where they were, but then uh, never acted or never nothing ever came through it um, and these rubies have subsequently vanished never been found there is a chance i think that they're in some you know they're somewhere but the one of the rumors that is that they were actually taken to amsterdam and pledged i think for twenty thousand pounds at the time um which wow. which would have been a lot of money uh to be held for three years and if they weren't recovered after three years they would have been broken up um so, My so I don't know. No one knows. My good feeling is that they are out there because the uh, the sum of the parts probably wouldn't have equaled the uh, the value of the pieces in their entirety. So yeah. So, but you never know. You'd be know. silly to break them up. You would be, but on the flip side, it'd be hard to sell it. Although back then, I mean, there's no, there was no eBay. <laughs> there was no, so that, you know, you could probably bring them to a different country and sell Private them. No seller, bother. Yeah. So um, it is actually quite possible that these and they, that particular piece the saltar of saint patrick was set predominantly with rubies and i hope that uh, we find it one day that is incredible story matthew about yeah. the irish and their rubies well i don't know if it's so widely talked about over here it was definitely talk widely talked about in australia um, about the the da- the current Danish royal family, um, because uh, the the prince who will one one day be king um, actually married a commoner who was Australian, and um, he met her at the 
2000 Olympics in a bar called Slip In, which now, <laughs> which now they all, um, all of the, um, all of the Australians go there looking for their own prints. Now they got married in 2003 and, uh, she actually received from um, her husband-to-be a ruby and diamond engagement ring. That's not the famous ruby that I'm going to talk about, though, um, which had two rubies and a diamond, which represented the Danish flag mm-hmm. because it's a – I don't know if you know what it looks like, but it's a white cross. Red, red flag, royal cross. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, red flag, white cross. So that's where he got his design thought process for the engagement ring. But she was given um, as a part of her gift for marrying into the family, the Danish ruby perure tiara. Um, And you may, uh, you might not have seen, but whenever you see her at quite large engagements, national engagements, she'll be wearing this incredible um, tiara. Uh, which has been in the Danish royal family since about the beginning of the 1800s. Now it's a it's a really um, it's a really quite interesting story because um, the person who originally uh, had the suite, as it was originally, it didn't have a tiara. It had like hair clips. It had like a necklace, and I think it had a bracelet. Um, was um, Desiree Clary and she was supposed to marry um, Napoleon Bonaparte and she was her his fiance and then it dissolved and then she ended up getting married into the Swedish royal family and when she married into the Swedish royal family she received this Perur or this um Perur is a set, is a set of jewelry. Of jewelry. Like yeah. earrings, braces, exactly. necklaces. That all match. Bodices, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, that all match. And so she received this when she married into the Swedish royal family, and then she wore it to the coronation of Napoleon when he was actually <laughs> <laughs> so she was, you know, kind of like, here I am with my amazing jewels on. I don't need you. I've got some, I've got another prince. Anyway, it was then subsequently the hair clips from this particular um, from this particular set were then made into a tiara, and now it was it's now sits on the head of Crown Princess Mary, who is Australian. You Incredible. Know? So it's um. It is, it's an international flavor to these pieces true to generations though yeah exactly and it has such a incredible history to it but it is very ornate it almost looks as if um i don't know if you've seen the kind of headbands that uh that are quite in fashion at the moment that kind of sit across the head yeah kind of i do it kind of looks like uh, the current headbands that um uh, a lot of the royal family, the English royal family now are wearing as fascinators um, on their head. It kind of looks like that, but it looks like kind of red butterflies with um, diamond set wings going across the head. So it, it almost looks quite modern, but it is an antique piece. And this is why I chose it because there are a lot of ruby tiaras in the royal families. There's the Spanish um, wedding gift tiara, which has rubies that 
interchange in and out. You can wear um, aquamarines with it or just diamonds with it or the rubies with it. Um, of course, um, the British royal family have a, a plethora of different ruby pieces because they were originally the um, colonizers of Burma. So they received a lot of the rubies that were coming, the wealth of rubies that were coming out of Bur- the Burmese mines um, in in what we now call antique times. Um, and I just wanted to go with something that was a little bit more obscure as I usually try to. Um, and of course the Australian connection is one that, um, we can't hide. Uh, yeah. It sounds, it sounds like a really amazing looking tiara and, uh, sounds modern with the butterflies and things, but that of course was a Victorian motif. And I know we do this, this podcast is purely like, we just want to talk jewelry, be informative, but if I can get in one little, uh, minute marketing line uh, from our shop we do have a beautiful ruby tiara in stock just uh just very recently it is very very special and i actually think it would do justice to most royal collections and um, but for a court fill decent price but again it, it, there's something about a tiara actually well listen to your story it has a slight more mystique than some other pieces of jewelry like tiaras scepters you know th- these very unusual pieces that you know Obviously, rings are very important, but they have a special kind of glory. Aura. Sorry, yeah, aura. That's aura. right, aura to them. Yeah, that's a that's a fast. I'm actually gonna have to look up that uh, tiara. I've never seen it. And funny, you said that the the English were the colonizer of Burma, and I don't know if uh, while I was looking up this, I actually I don't know what I don't know. It's gone into some sort of um, you're watching videos on YouTube, and you kind of just get into you know watching different ones. And I, I was watching the Queen trooping the color and i think it was at 1981 when um someone fired some blank shots at uh at her i think they've actually fired six shots and uh the her horse kind of jumped and nearly went out of control but she managed to control she actually looked like a fantastic rider to be honest now so um but her horse was actually called burmese so there you go but that is a very interesting um a very cool and mix of modern and antique but let's move on now to our insider trade secrets i always find that if we mention what we do to someone they're always quite interested to know i I always have that feeling if i'm talking to like a a member of the guards or the police force it's always an interest because you kind of wonder what there's a bit of mystery to it you're kind of like is this like the TV shows or how does it work? But definitely when people talk to us, they have a real, they're like, what, like, how does this industry work? And with rubies, there's some, you know, the trade of rubies is, it's really quite fascinating. You have to obviously be very astute. There's your antique jewelry. There's your modern rubies. Even if you want to buy rough crystals, very, very difficult, uh, you know, very challenging dangerous probably in a lot of ways but um, obviously we deal in the antique rubies but trade tips hit me what's your trade tip when it comes to rubies i would say with a ruby the first thing that i would say to someone is be realistic in price uh because a lot of the time you know People think that a colored gemstone is going to be less than a diamond and they don't understand actually that ruby 
they go, oh, I'm going to go for an alternative to diamond and I'm going to go for ruby. And my trade tip would be to be realistic with your expectations for what you can get for the money that you want to spend. Um, Of course, you can get nice rubies, but it's on the same level. I'd say it's on the same level as diamond and it's not below. So that's my number one. Um, But I'd always say to someone um, with color, okay, so I know that we're, we're flogging a dead horse here when it comes to color, but I would say my number one trade tip is do not let anybody tell you what is a beautiful red. The beautiful Very red. Very wise. Very wise. Yeah. <laughs> the beautiful red is the red that you like. And that is it. Even if a pigeon blood ruby, which is the very, very best color that you can get for ruby, even if that is in front of you and you don't like the color of that red and you prefer a, a lighter red or a deeper, darker red that you might see from the, um, from the Thai rubies, don't go for what other people tell you is the most beautiful. Go for what you think is beautiful. And it's really important that you follow that information because you don't want to be wearing something that somebody else finds attractive and you don't find attractive. You're going to find no pleasure in it at all. Uh, You have to go for what you find beautiful. I always think if there's two views to it, there's, and when, when, people come in and they you know there's your commercial value and then there's your personal like for something and they don't exactly what you said i think it's bang on the money they don't have to they don't have to correlate you could absolutely love something and if it's not the commercially valuable color good for you you're gonna get a you're gonna get a lot more bang for your book uh in you know in terms of the size probably and, and the intensity of that particular color um, but if you happen to like, you know, untreated pigeon blood, red Burmese rubies, uh, you're you're probably gonna have to pay up for those stones, I'd say. So yeah, yeah, I had I just to add to that, I had a client once, and um, it, they were they were so lovely, so so lovely, and um, the the fiance, the, the, the male came in to me, um, first. And he said to me, my, my girlfriend, she'd really love a Ruby. And I said to him, okay, um, has she given you any kind of indication on color? Like, cause the, the different reds, there's so many out there. Um, has, you know, does she kind of gravitate towards a specific color? And he said, she actually prefers like a very crimson, almost maroon, dark red. And I said to him, okay, I said, we can go, we can go for that. I said, it actually works out a lot better for you in terms of price. So I brought in, I got it in a few stones for a few Thai rubies for him to look at. And he chose the most valuable of them because he wanted to get her something that was valuable. So he wanted to get in his mind, he thought, you know, money, spending the money on something that is considered more valuable. I want to give my fiance that for the engagement yes. ring. 
Anyway, so we had it set for him and um, in a beautiful three stone setting and in yellow gold, it looked incredible. Was this back in your modern jewelry days or was this a commission later? This was a commission. So this was a commission because he he looked at the rubies that we had and they were very bright red, but he wanted something that was crimson, very, very deep red. Um, And he wanted it to not have so much sparkle in it. So I needed to find more of an included stone. So it was difficult. It was difficult to find. So um, we got there and I got him a selection. He chose the, the one that he wanted and he proposed with it. And she actually came back and she wanted darker so it was still too it was still too light for her and she wanted it to have even more even less sparkle to the stone and so to me i was like okay that's that's fine i brought out the other selection that i had brought in from and she chose the very very darkest which also had an iron inclusion in it and um, she thought, you know, that was beautiful. It showed that this particular piece was, you know, was a natural ruby and it looked natural and it looked rustic and it suited her perfectly. And when she wore it, it looked amazing. It was something that was perfect for her. And I think that was a real lesson for me that I can't put my knowledge and my value of these gemstones onto other people. I have to kind of adapt and make sure that I'm allowing people to express what they really want when it comes to to the jewel that they're going to wear every day. Yes. Although I do wonder though, if you follow that natural journey, that natural conclusion, you will probably end up at the very, very stones that are the commercially most valuable because you start to see why they're probably better yeah you you definitely you definitely learn to fall in love with the things that make items valuable for sure but um it's just it's an important lesson to remember when you know a trade insider tip is always go with your gut feeling go with what you find beautiful and don't listen to the background noise of what somebody else is telling you. Your gut will tell you, no, I like this and I will wear it every day. That's a great tip and not only just specific to rubies. That could be, I think it's very relevant for other gemstones as well, but especially maybe for rubies. So my trade tip for rubies, and I thought a few, I mean, the one we touched on earlier, if you uh, use a fluorescent light for uh, ruby and it fluoresces, there's a very good chance they're Burmese and obviously the Burmese ones tend to be the most valuable. I think that's a very good tip. The only thing I would say though is that that also spinels can also fluoresce sometimes and, and Thai rubies as well. So it is not definitely a foolproof method, but it is a rule of thumb. But no, my, my trade tip that I would share with you for rubies today is you'll hear, sorry, a lot of things like, you know, that a lot of rubies are treated and heated. I would not be turned off by that at all because that is happens to uh, 99% of them. And again, the similar for sapphire, it's just enhancing the natural color that's already there. And I know we touched on this before, but it, it just takes what's there and brings it to the fore. And if you get a natural untreated stone, that is just something extra special and that's something to really be valued and treasured and coveted but there's beautiful treated heated stones 
which are the norm and some of those make the most fabulous, fabulous jewellery. And finally, moving on to this week's Gem Trivia Pursuit. Are you ready, Elise Ketcher? I don't think I am. Okay. Well, do you do you want to go first? Or, uh, what I, think wage, what I, wage? I think I've always gone first, haven't I, Russ? Yeah. Yeah, I've always gone first. Shall we that. change it around so that maybe you get a winning margin? And you might crack under the pressure. <laughs> okay. No, I'm good with that. All right. Shoot. Okay, no, I find sorry, 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 do you want me I'll to read it. them? No, I'll do it. No, I'll read no, I'll, I'll read them. Okay, question one. All right. Sorry, go. who? Sorry, I wasn't sure. Do you want me to read I'll go first. Right. Mind games. Go Mind games. <laughs> I'll go first. Yeah, it's all right. Question one. <laughs> In 2011, Elizabeth Taylor's complete jewellery collection was auctioned with several ruby set pieces included in the sale. But can you tell me which of her co-stars she married and divorced twice? Oh, he wrote the book Death of a Salesman. Don't uh, even look at him. He wrote the book Death of a Salesman. Uh, something, uh, oh, I read this in school. We have to go three. There's not a time two. limit on this. What are you talking about? <laughs> Arthur something. Oh. Is that your last? He wrote Death of a Salesman. I'm going to give you a clue because I feel really bad for you. So pity marks. <laughs> there's also a very large diamond that's named after the two of them. Tis the Taylor something diamond. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think I gave I'll, pretty good I'll, clues. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I, no, hold on, no, no, you're out. I know exactly this guy. What's you're, his name? What's you're out, you're What's out. What's his name? Go on. Richard Burton. Richard Burton. Oh. I think of Arthur Miller, yeah. She did marry him as well, though, didn't but she? But not twice. Oh, right, and okay. Richard Burton was, she said she only had, she said she only had two loves in her life. One was Richard Burton and the other was jewellery. And I feel very sorry for her children. <laughs> yeah, well, I can't complain <laughs> with the veracity of that question. That was uh, that was perfectly fair. Okay. okay, question two: A traditional Hindu ar- astrological belief holds rubies as gemstones of what heavenly body? Basically, what in the sky? Yeah, is denoted to rubies for Hindus. Shooting stars. Jupiter. Uh, Jupiter. Uh, oh. <laughs> The sun and I actually was being very nice because I said the sky. I said like everything above us. Okay. I thought you were drawing a house. <laughs> <laughs> Last question. While the sun is bright or the darkest night, no one knows she comes and goes. Are lyrics from which Rolling Stones hit from 1966? While the sun is bright or the darkest night, no one knows she comes and goes. Just choose any Rolling Stone song. Rolling Stones. That might have Ruby in it. And if you don't know one, just like make up a Ruby something. Ruby. I mean. Ruby and maybe. Ruby Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was a gimme. I, reading your questions, though, reading your questions, I think this is uh, over, to be honest. I should have got the Taylor Burton diamond. That was. Okay, yeah, okay, okay. 
The Liberty Bell, the largest mined ruby in the world, was stolen in a heist in 2011. But in which U.S. city is the actual Liberty Bell located? Three, two. Washington, D.C. That is incorrect. Idaho. No, it's actually in Philadelphia, <laughs> uh, Pennsylvania. Yeah, I'm funny. Uh, in my preempting of the questions, I actually researched this. Um, but it was a, it was a, it was an enormous. It's actually an enormous ruby. I think it was over three thousand. I've seen it. It looks like yeah. a big slab of meat, actually. Yeah, it does actually look like a big steak. <laughs> yeah. But um, okay. Number two. There's, I think this is the one you might get, right? Finish the title of this hit song recorded by both Waylon Jennings and Kenny Rogers in 1960. Ruby, don't take your love to town. Yes. Oh, Ruby, don't take your love to town. It wasn't um, me that started that old crazy Asian war. <laughs> <laughs> At least you have a lovely voice, actually. Do you sing? Have you ever? Next. Okay. Uh, can you name the recently retired Irish jockey with the record most wins in history of the Cheltenham Festival? No. I cannot name. I can't even name one jockey. Well, he's, he's he obviously has Ruby in his name. Take, take your time. Take your time. No rush. Ross has just reminded us we have to open the shop in seven minutes. Rodney Ruby. <laughs> I actually think I actually think we would have given you a mark, but it is Ruby Walsh. Of course, that is a tricky one, but. Um, if, is there, if you're no interest in horse racing, obviously that'd be difficult, but Ruby Walsh obviously won a record number of times at Cheltenham and I think in many other venues as well. Jimmy so. Weldon would have got that faux show. <laughs> oh yeah, he would have, yeah, of course he would have. Um, I think we need to tell you, we have a tiebreaker question. Okay, tiebreaker question is, the Smithsonian uh, National Museum of Natural History in the States has some of the finest Ruby gemstones in the world, but first person to shout out the city that the Smithsonian is in. Washington, D.C. Bam, 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 bam. I mean, do you just answer Washington, D.C. to every question and eventually it'll be right or something no, like that? No, Washington, D.C. is also the Smithsonian. You were there. That's not fair. No, I haven't. <laughs> the, the Smithsonian Museum also holds the Hope Diamond and it's also where the Chalk Emerald is. It's like has some of the most fabulous gemstones. Well, Elise, you have a fabulous knowledge of Ruby, and I have to congratulate you, you on your win in the Gem Trivia Pursuit it was, today. It was this close, Matthew, you and I know. Yeah, uh, well, look, all that matters is the, the score at the end of the, the game, I suppose, and fair play. Um, we'll have to, I think I have to win the rest of the series now, and I'll still actually, never mind. Guys, and ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed the uh, Ruby podcast today. Really is a fascinating gem. Obviously, we have a beautiful stock of rubies here in Courtville. Uh, what I would say, anyone who's listened to us, who's enjoying our podcast, uh, and I really hope you are, and I really hope you're getting some good information from it. Uh, if you could leave us a review on uh, either Spotify or iTunes, We'd really, really appreciate it. You know, we're putting a big effort into, into getting this information out there. And if you did have a chance to do that, we'd really appreciate it. Um, also, we're on Instagram at Matthew.Weldons and we do lots of live videos and interesting posts there. Uh, Elise, thank you for today. Uh, and I'm looking forward to next week.
Thanks, Matthew. And thanks to our producer, Ross, as well. Chat to you all then. Bye.